This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. My parents, I think, just like many before them and and reasonably so, were like trying not to make the mistakes that their parents made. But also I I recognize, you know, going back to your intro to this podcast, that really it's about compassion and letting people be themselves and clustering a way for that to be true. And that's really all I want to do. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place. One parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show, I'm just smiling as I'm talking. Our guest is making me smile. This show is a very particular experience. Grief, comedy, inherited trauma, and stillbirth with Liz Glazer. Thank you, Dr. Dan. It's so nice to be here. And I'm smiling too because of you. And uh, I was just listening to your intro. Uh, what a what a wonderful way, not only to begin a podcast, which 10 out of 10, but also to think of one's life as a person and as a parent. I right now, I don't know if you know this, but hot piece of information. I'm in the moment now between my wife being like nine plus months pregnant and hopefully our having our first alive child. Wow. Um, Congrats. I knew it was in the works. I did not know the process where you were in the works. That is awesome. Yeah. So I, I mean, I was, I was excited to talk to you just in general and also in that moment, you know, because I right now, I mean, I'm a self-help person. Mm -hmm. Like I need a lot of it Mm -hmm. and I feel, you know, I don't know where it comes from. Like I grew up, I'm Jewish and I grew up going to Jewish day school and we would read from the Torah, from the Bible, the, the old Testament. And I don't think it's a great book. I'm just like, like, I'm not saying, I don't mean it to be heretical. I'm just like, listen, I'm the audience Mm -hmm. for a self-help book. Yes. And 
I am not loving that book because, you know, it's kind of like a self-help book. What I love about it is when the person is vulnerable, you know, so like, where's God being like, well, I used to be a heroin addict and then I (laughs) came out of it, you know, whatever it is. And, and so I love that kind of stuff. And I'm reading, this is why I'm telling you this, a lot of like parenting Mm -hmm. stuff and trying to consume content because I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I want to be a good parent, obviously. But your intro is just wonderfully encapsulating Uh, in that regard. So bravo. Thank you. Thank you. And um, thank you for bringing up my Hebrew school trauma at the (laughs) beginning of the show. And uh, I had some similar experiences. Granted, it was not an everyday experience like yours, but um, it was quite challenging reading something I didn't quite understand Yeah. But, you know, tradition, right? Tradition. For sure. And I mean, and I'm, I'm all about the tradition elements of it, but I'm like, listen, if there's a metaphor, Mm -hmm. feel free to break it down at some point, because it's a lot of people washing their feet, getting into a tent. I know how everybody is related. It's like a story from, sometimes I love my mother-in-law and also she tends to tell stories where I'm like, I'm very sure who's cousins with whom, but I don't know what happened in this story at all. And I feel that way about the Bible. Yes, yes, yes. Now, as you said, um, your mother-in-law, who I know a little bit about from your uh, stand-up, I realized we just like launched right into it. And I didn't even say all the wonderful things that I want to say about you. So people have a little, a little backdrop here. Okay. (laughs) So we just like went into this. I love it. Okay. So everyone just a little bit more about Liz. You need to know this. She's an award-winning stand-up comedian, an actor and a writer. She won first place in the Boston comedy festival and ladies of laughter competition. She's been featured in the wall street journal as well as many other publications. She's opened for Mike Kaplan and Maria Bamford. And she's also a part of the Seattle International Comedy Competition and will be part of the upcoming HBO Women in Comedy Festival. Mm-hmm. She's appeared in ABC's For Life, CBS's Bull, and is on the faculty of Leslie Kahn and Company, the LA Acting Studio. And, and, and she's writing a television pilot about her life, a draft yes. which was a semifinalist in Stage 32 Writing Competition. I'm almost done because this is so important. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> she began her career, we're going to talk about this, and anyone yeah. who knows her knows this about her, is that as a tenured and highly published law professor, we're going to get into that. Sure. Um, and most importantly, she is celebrating her 10th year of stand-up comedy with her debut album, mm. Comedy LP, which is out on Blonde Medicine, titled, similar to this show, A Very Particular Experience. Now I'm yes. going to be the person who introduces you. Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Glazer. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dr. Dan. Yeah, I, oh. really, I appreciate Man. it. Man. Oh, okay. We are, we're, okay. So let's, there's so many directions to go here. Um, sure. I'm glad we started with the joy of mm-hmm. your and Karen's upcoming child. Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, first and foremost, you know, acknowledge your loss. Yeah. Um, thank you. And which is, we'll talk about that. It's been a little while. I don't think losses ever go away. They take on different forms. And not only did you have this loss, but then you created your comedy show, your writing Mm -hmm. with very difficult topics. 
and, yes. and like and what was that process like of like oh you know i'm going to i'm just going to make fun of this stuff which is really painful sure yeah well i mean and and one thing i i do want to note is that i believe what i've done with the experience of stillbirth that happened to to me and to us me and my wife is you know it's not poking fun at it but it's making light from it mm-hmm. and um my thought with it was really pretty simple it was more like listen this happened and that sucks mm-hmm. and i i know laughter like not not even just from being a comedian like that's you know for me and i go into this on the album like as the granddaughter of four out of four Holocaust survivors, my parents Mm -hmm. with a lot of that inherited trauma, Mm -hmm. that's very much the way that we've always processed information, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way that we've gotten through the world. And so it wasn't so much like a hugely conscious choice to do it, but more just like, well, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it started because in the hospital, stuff happened to us after the actual moment of realizing that our daughter was very, Leo Pearl of blessed memory was very unfortunately stillborn. You know, other stuff happened to us in the hospital and I was like, oh, this is funny. And what do comedians yeah. do when it's yeah. funny? I think Phil Rosenthal um, was somebody who who I can attribute this quote to, that the only difference between a comedian and another person is a comedian writes it down. Hmm. Right. Funny stuff happens. You can think of a joke. Anybody can be funny. You don't have to go to law school to be a comedian. Right. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, but I'm an overachiever. No, but I, (laughs) (laughs) but you don't have to. And that's a good thing because laughter is accessible and relatable to all of us. Mm -hmm. And it's an available form of coping and it, it can be that, but my style, whether it's from the inherited Holocaust trauma or otherwise has always been, listen, I want to acknowledge the gravity the severity, the reality of a serious, sad moment in in my life or somebody else's. And also I'm a funny person Mm -hmm. and I desire to light up a moment and my life in general. And so in the hospital, after some of this stuff started happening and there were like two or three instances, I'm like, well, I got to write this down. So I started a file entitled Way Too Soon in a note on my phone. Mm -hmm. And that was the genesis of this hour. Mm -hmm. And then the year anniversary was coming up of the stillbirth. And I knew it was going to be a hard day because anniversaries are. And so I say this on the album recording itself and also it was true that I did this hour on November 10th of 22, which was a year to the day from November 10th of 21, which was when Leo Pearl's stillbirth occurred. Mm-hmm. And I did it really as a love letter and a gesture to my wife, Karen, because I knew, yeah, it's going to be hard for me and it's mm-hmm. going to be hard for Karen. And maybe because the day is going to happen anyway, and we get the gift of that day, yeah. right, which Leo never got. Right. right. This is stillbirth really like brought home for me the privilege that it is to be alive and to pass time. Mm-hmm. And so even a day that is the anniversary of this terrible thing, which is so hard, is a yeah. day that she can't experience and we can. Mm-hmm. And what a thing. Couldn't we use our humanness on that day 
to create something. And maybe it'll help people mm-hmm. who are going through grief, who are wondering if they're ever going to laugh again, which was something that we did right. wonder. Right. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. that was how. Yeah. So it was in some ways almost like a given, not so much like a huge decision. It was just like, well, this is what we have to do. Yeah. And you just hit on something that I was going to bring up later, but it's yeah. so appropriate now. Mm. Towards the end of your show, you talked about this process and the the show and what your intention is for yourself yeah. and others. And you said to live with more love than fear yeah, and worry less about death. Well, right? living. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and I, I really took care to like putting together a comedy album is not so different from, from putting together a case, right. Mm -hmm. An argument for something. And so Mm -hmm. each of the stories, each of the jokes was situated in the hour in order to like shore up, you know, the fact that I'm anxious about death, for example. And there's like many jokes and stories that kind of make that point effectively. Right. Um, I say the word effectively, not because I believe it to be effective, effect, whatever the adjective is efficacious, I think, mm-hmm. but rather that that is the reason behind it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I do think it was effectively made, but I, I always am cautious to be like, I'm not reviewing my own work. Yes. Uh, I'm just telling you what I wanted it to be. Um, but I, so I was always worried about death and that's like been true. As long as I have a memory, yeah. I've been aware that I've been worried about not my own death, but other people dying around me. Um, and, I say this, which is like, you know, we were always an I love you family, my family. We are, we were, we always have been million times on the phone. Like, I mean, you would think it's like we have a drinking game of saying I love you. We say it so much. (laughs) And I realized at some point I was like, I think what we're saying is please don't die. Mm -hmm. And so now my brother and I kind of as a joke, will just say, please don't die. Because if that's what we really mean, then maybe let's just say it. And also, I love you. Yeah. Anyway, I talk about that on the album. And then one of the things I realized when I held Leo, our stillborn daughter, Mm -hmm. was I was like, this is the only person I've ever loved who I wasn't worried about her dying because when I met her, she was already dead. Mm. And I meant it. I mean, first of all, it was a thing that occurred to me as a thought, but I was like, isn't this an interesting, almost like, I don't mean to clinicalize this, but like almost a test case, Mm -hmm. right. For how do you divorce death and a fear of death from love, right? Love and a fear of loss are so intertwined, Mm -hmm. but could you have a controlled experiment as it were and take out the fear of death? Well, how do you do that? Okay. Put in front of you something that someone that you love and you can't fear they're dying because they're dead. And I suppose another controlled experiment could be somebody who's dead, right? I love my dad. He's not alive, but I knew him when he was alive. And do I love the dead version of my dad? I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus the alive version. You don't know because I've known both and you can't control for those variables. Um, So that's the reason that I think, you know, it came at me as such a mm-hmm. truth bomb or an insight or, you know, like a light bulb going off. Yeah. I mean, talk about the unthinkable exposure therapy for fear Correct. of death, right? Like yeah. to just boom. Um, I, so I always had a fear of death. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh, for as long as I could remember till yeah. 
maybe mid twenties, but it, mine I think was a little different than you. I was, I believe more afraid of myself not existing mm-hmm. than others not existing, but it sounds sure. like you were the opposite. Yeah. I was. I mean, I remember when we moved in, we lived in an apartment as a family until I was seven, six or seven years old when we moved into a house. And I was petrified because I had never lived. We And, and this is going to make it sound fancier than it was. We always had a doorman, but not like a fancy doorman. It was like a building yeah. in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and they had a doorman. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we moved into the house, I was like, where's the doorman? And, you know, my parents were like, well, this is, you know, it doesn't work that way. And I was like, oh my God, well, what happens if someone comes at the door? Which by the way, I'm still afraid. We moved into a house now. I love my neighbors, et cetera. But um, I'm still afraid when somebody knocks on the door, I like hide and, you know, I have like Mm -hmm. nine, one dialed already. And when we first moved into our house now, this is me as an adult, somebody's knocking, knocking on the door. Of course, I'm going nowhere near it, never in a million years. And then they go to the back of my house, start knocking there. At that point, the knocking's getting more vigorous. I'm like, I I have to open the door because it's already I'm I'm a done deal at that point. Might as well just meet my executioner. And then I open the door. It's the nine year old from down the block. <laughs> hey, do you guys have any allergies or food restrictions? Because my dad wants to make you dinner. It was the sweetest thing. Anyway, so. I was so scared moving into a house because where's the protection, yeah. et cetera. And my response to that was we had like, we lived in a house where all of the bedrooms were on the the main floor of the house. It was a ranch, a real true ranch. And um, my parents' room was in the back, the primary suite. That was, you know, that's where they are. Mm-hmm. But then me and my brother could have had one of two rooms and I picked the smaller one because it was closest to the door. And I'm like, if these if somebody's going to get in the house, they got to get through me first. And I was mm-hmm. seven years old. Yeah. Okay. And so that's always been my mentality. I'm just like so afraid. And I think that it's, it's just a self. I don't think of it as any kind of altruistic thing mm-hmm. because really I'm afraid of being the lone survivor. Right. I think right. is I'm afraid of my own grief in yeah. that, you know, tragedy yeah. fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you have mentioned, you know, one of the probably the reasons you got into law school and had such an illustrious law degree is your um, high, high GAD generalized anxiety disorder score, right? Like even higher than your LSAT score. I mean, you say in in tongue in cheek, but I can relate as well. Mm -hmm. I what I feel like um, and I'm going to talk about culture here. Yeah, I'm just going to say this coming from the Jewish culture as well. There is a lot of trauma. There's a lot of trauma in many cultures, right? So we're just talking about this culture, which we have experience in. There is a lot of anxiety that runs through our culture. And and there just seems to be a long-standing, very real experience of persecution. Um, Back to the Torah, as you you point out, right? And so it comes through us, Mm -hmm. I think, in nature, in, in nurture. And, and then, and then we become parents and our kids have some of that possible DNA depending on the situation. And then we have to parent in a way which hopefully we're thinking about this, but it's really hard to think about our own worries and how our own worries are coming off on our children as we step into this brand new role. I'm guessing you've thought about that a little bit. 
I've thought about it a lot and I know you're saying a little tongue in cheek also. And yeah, well, I also think about it because, you know, my, my wife is pregnant. We did IVF. And so the joke I say on stage is, you know, my wife is pregnant, get a lot of applause. And I'm like, it's somebody else's baby. And, you know, because it literally is. And I say that not because like, I, I don't really, I'm always like a truth first person. Like, we can say it's my baby, but I'm like, if somebody's like, who's the real mom? I'm like her, she mm-hmm. like, I don't mm-hmm. care if you want to say that question, what, not you, yeah, you, but you know, I don't, I don't get bent out of shape about it. Um, but I, I've been thinking about this whole thing because I'm like, listen, if I'm going to imprint on this kid, it's going to be from nurture because nature wise, right. it's not me. Right. right. And that's probably a good thing, to be honest. I mean, I have some blue eyes and that's good, but I go gray early, you know, a lot of fat around the midsection, hard to lose, heart disease, both <laughs> sides, glaucoma, you know, so it's yes. it's good for everybody. But it's also like, you know, I then think in a serious fashion about to what degree am I going to make an imprint on mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. child? And of course, I think, I mean, for me, for sure, I'm like, well, I don't want, if I could avoid messing the kid up, I would love that. That's always great. Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, you know, my parents, I think, just like many before them and, and reasonably so, were like trying not to make the mistakes that their parents made. Yeah. Sure. I'll, I'll take that. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I, I recognize, you know, going back to your intro to this podcast, that really it's about compassion and letting people be themselves, mm-hmm. you know, yes. and create yeah. fostering a way for that to be true. Yeah. Right. And that's really all I want to do, I think. Yeah. Well, and that is a wonderful guiding goal because I feel we get so, there's so much information out on parenting this and parenting that. It used to just be, there's like Dr. Spock book and Terry Brazelton's like touch points book. There is so much information and a lot of it's good information, but there's, there's tons of information and, you know, raising a successful kid, raising a balanced kid, raising a happy kid. And it's like, what you just said is if we can focus on allowing these young beings, these humans, these emerging human beings to be who they are and who they're meant to be in a, as purposeful and intentional way as possible. I don't think a child can ask for anything else in a parent. If that is what is guiding us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really believe in that. And I think that, you know, you mentioned like my background and stuff in, in law. I think that that's really been the main journey is like, just like, I mean, cause when I was teaching law, it was a good gig, mm-hmm. you know, like full-time tenured law professor. I mean, especially within law, you cannot get better in my opinion. And you know, that's borne out by some of the stuff that people say. Like, I mean, frankly, you 
I remember starting at law firm life and everybody being like, oh, it sucks. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that that's the culture mm-hmm. that everybody thinks that. Um, and then I went into law teaching and it's like really night and day in that regard. It's all these people who are like, oh, well, this is the best job in the world. It's the best job in the world. And and not to say that they're all like happy all the time, because I don't think that's true either. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a marked differentiator of the two cultures, right? Mm-hmm. The culture of hating the job and the yep. culture of loving the job, which I think are distinct from actually loving or hating any job, right? right? It's right. two different things. But in any event, so it was a good gig and I was good at it, you know, mm-hmm. not to say perfect, yeah. but like I got tenure, I had some publications of note, I won some awards teaching, I liked it. Mm-hmm. And then I did stand up and I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that there could be an experience like of this caliber of like selfness. And I have a joke about it, which is, it, it comes from something I said to my therapist. I told my therapist after I did stand up for the first time, I'm like, I felt like I was having a professional orgasm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what it felt like, which by the way, the joke version is if you don't know what a professional orgasm is, it's basically a regular orgasm, but I was a hundred percent sure that it was happening. Okay. And so on that basis, that was really the moment yeah. that I was like, I got to get out of here from law and pursue this, you know, that seems like ultimate, I mean, beyond that, uh, like that elation that, yeah. but then there's that courage it takes yeah. to, you know, I'm sh- to every, like what you're leaving right. a tenured law, like to what, to, yeah. to join the circus, you uh-huh. know, like this, it's like, yeah. wait, what, like, yeah. what was the process when you because I feel it's like something, you know, we have to jump. We have to take that leap of faith, that good old Indiana right. Jones. You t- have to take a step out on a bridge that you hope is there when you step down, but you're not sure. sure. What, sure. What, when, what was that like for you? Well, so it was a couple things. One is the day after my first ever performance, I was like running on fumes and I had this daydream, sort of like a download thought. And I was on the tonight show already on the couch, not even doing stand up on the couch of the tonight mm. show. And I'm asked the question, wait, so you were a law professor for a decade and then you just jumped and did stand up comedy. And I said in the daydream, I said, well, actually, Jimmy, it wasn't a decade. It was nine years. And I was like, oh my God, isn't that funny? Because I'm rounding down when it's not in my favor. And by the way, this was during my seventh year of teaching. So I wasn't Mm. teaching nine years at that point. Okay. Seven years. And so I have this thought. I tell my mother, my mother's like, I don't really get the joke. Don't quit your day job. Okay. That's what she said. And, And she was right. But I kept having that thought in the back of my mind because it was so vivid. You know, it was like this real scene of a thought. And then maybe like, I don't know, 10 months later, I'm on the phone with the dean of my school because he's saying we got this budget moment. We're Mm. offering all tenured faculty members buyout packages because you're tenured. So you need a buyout and they don't, they don't write it down because they don't, I mean, this is me editorial Mm -hmm. commenting. Like, I think they don't want the memo to be basically like blasted on a website, like a gossipy thing, you know, Oh, the school's in trouble. They're fine. They were fine. Whatever. Anyway, 
but this was a decanal coming from the Dean decision mm-hmm. to do this. And basically I was on the phone with him and he goes through each of the tranches of these buyout packages. Oh, you could do half time, a quarter time, an eighth time, whatever you get some money in, in, mm-hmm. in exchange because you're giving up a position. And really these are, again, this is my editorial, but it's also, it's pretty true. It's like, they don't want the older people to sue them. And so they just give it blanket to anybody who's in the category of tenured. Okay. So I was recently tenured after six years, but I was, uh, this applied to me because of my tenure. Okay. Even though I wasn't the designed audience, I think for this kind of a move anyway. So he's going through the tranches and then he says, or somebody could quit could elect to quit at the end of next year, which would have been my eighth year. And then the final final was, or somebody could elect to quit at the end of next year. And that was my ninth year of teaching. And I was Ooh. like, my mind was blown because I'm like, oh my God, this is the vision. It's coming you true. And I said, yeah. yeah, I said, I picked that one. And the Dean, who was also a friend of mine, we were on the faculty together for a long time. He was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I basically told him exactly this. And I was like, this is just too specific for me to walk away from. And also, you know, I think if it was just that, I wouldn't have, it was sort of like, that was like, I guess you could, you could say a sign or whatever, but it was just like, I really loved doing stand up, and I liked very much teaching. Yes. And I even loved it in some moments. However, I think the, the moment of doing stand up was just this wow type of experience. Yeah. And then I had this, you know, arguably wild, wacky vision. And then it kind of all came together. And I was like, I picked that. But that decision was effective a year and a half from that conversation. So then yeah. I had this kind of lame duck time, right. Right. which of course I felt like I did my best teaching, you know, because nothing mattered. And, yeah. um, and then, wow. yeah, I left. Wow. So that is a great story. So I want to put a few things together here Mm -hmm. um, for all of us is one is you listening to yourself, you listening to like, I'm going to use the word your inner self, your, I'm going to use the S word, your soul, you, 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 you listen, you acknowledge, you then have this sort of daydream as you say it but like almost this vision of you see this thing happening and then and then this is the interaction with our universe then the universe brings something to you that you had Mm -hmm. choices to make you had lots of choices to make but first of all it's like wow this is cool i have an opportunity after being a recent tenured professor and i mean it's like everything came together and you leaned into it like you you went with it because so where's the fear right because you're good at worrying what in this situation Mm. anxiety fear was that just like barely in the backdrop because it was so in line with your I guess yeah yeah I think that's got it's a really good question because it was almost wholly absent Mm. from that moment I mean first of all I was on the way to a funeral. This all happened in a funeral procession or processional, whatever, like mm-hmm. where it's like the be- the the hazard lights and like a long one because it was from northern New Jersey to the middle of Pennsylvania. And I'm sitting in the back of the car and my two high school friends are in the front of the car 
And I was like, I got to take this call from the dean. And we had nothing but time. So they're like, we'll do the call. And, you know, I mean, we're going to be here a while. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I mention it is because the person who died that day was my friend's mother, who was for me, somebody I knew from always. Mm -hmm. And she, for me, was somebody who embodied a fearlessness, a kind of like, just do it, you know, just mm-hmm. live your life. Like very in my memory mm-hmm. of her kind of like a close to the earth sort of person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if this was exactly what I was thinking about, but this was something that she was my science teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew her in the capacity of being my friend's mother and my science teacher. And I, I was a kid. I went as, as I said to Orthodox Jewish day school, or maybe I didn't say it, but we were talking about the Torah. Yeah. You, um, yeah. And you married a rabbi. Yeah. And okay. I married a rabbi. Yeah. 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 Reform yeah. rabbi. So okay. it's yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so I went to Orthodox Jewish day school and I knew I was gay then. Mm-hmm. And I was really scared because that was the time I'm 43 years old now. So when I was in seventh grade, that was when AIDS was like all mm-hmm. over, yeah. you know, the TV and you got to be scared. If you're gay, you have AIDS. Like mm-hmm. that was the narrative. Yeah. Problematic as it was, but that was the narrative at the time. And I knew I was gay and I was like, well, I, I have AIDS. I mm-hmm. must have AIDS. And um, I was so scared that I had AIDS and I was like, cause everything on the television was like, you have to tell people. And I was like, okay, so I have to tell people that I have AIDS. Mm. Okay. I guess I should start telling people. And I was so scared of this all the time that I was like, you know, maybe I can ask the science teacher about this because it's science. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it went up to her after, and again, Orthodox Jewish day school. And we don't talk about sex, let alone gay sex. Mm-hmm. And I asked this woman who was Orthodox herself. I was like, can you explain to me in a science way, like why do gay people have AIDS? And she, in such a generous, beautiful way, basically was like, it's not about gay or not gay. It's an exchange of fluids. And like the, you know, if you're having anal sex, then that might promote a tearing, which leads to blood, which leads to the exchange of fluids. It's really just a science thing. And it's like an unfortunate thing that this is plaguing a population, but like, That's what it's about. Mm. And it was such a generous act because I imagine that like getting that question in an Orthodox Jewish day school from a 12 year old, you know, there could have been a lot of ways she could have called the principal or whatever. Yeah. But I think she was able to be like, I got to tell this kid like what's what or else she's going to freak out because I can see that she's freaking out. And this was, it happened to be this woman's funeral and to me, she always was someone who transcended her like literal circumstances and like what the rules were that probably I'm guessing if there was a meeting where in this school, somebody's asking a question about gay sex, you take that to the top. Meanwhile, she did not do that. And she very generously did what her heart and brain came together and was like, this is what I got to tell this kid. And I think that that also helped me to have the courage Mm. that I did that day because I was like, not that she would have quit a job to be a comedian, but I think she would have been like, live your life. Yeah. You know, and I knew that that was what living my life or I, you know, had a strong kind of intuition from my soul, as you said. Yeah. To, to make that decision on that day. And I don't think it was an accident that it was on the way specifically to her funeral. Yeah. That's just another significant part of the story 
right? Yeah. Like that, uh, and, and what an honor, what a way to honor her and yeah. um, the impact that she had on you. And, yeah. and, and I can't only imagine the relief that you had after that conversation in seventh grade. Wild. Yeah. I mean, she really changed my life in mm-hmm. that moment so much mm-hmm. because you know, that was an environment where there was a lot of shame around being gay. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, literally saying like, this is wrong from the Bible. Right. And I was like a kid being like, I guess I'm wrong from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, not that she wasn't saying you're not, but she answered the question as posed to her in a way that was like clinical where it needed to be. Yeah. Not shaming. It wasn't, right. it was, yes, yeah, clinical and, and, t- and kudos to you for asking the clinical oh. question to the science teacher, right? Yeah. Like that was a very, that was a very strategic pick and, uh, turned out to be a. Yeah. A and she was one. a really, really special yeah. woman person and teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so here you are, um, in your, um, very particular experience stand-up show, you are surrounded by your family, your friends from all walks of life. Yeah. Is that like that, is that a mixed, like mixed bag feeling when you're, you're talking about them, you know, you're is, or is it just like, no, this is just what we do. Well, I've been doing that for a long time at this point. So I, I made the choice to start the hour by acknowledging them because it was all people. It, I was really marveling at the cast of characters that was present. Yeah. And so I was just like, I got to make this part of it because it's such a significant part of it. And it was, it's all people who, I mean, first of all, I don't make fun of people who I don't like, yeah. you know, um, I, I mean, I didn't get into comedy to insult a single person mm-hmm. and I very much view my comedy and also my reason for being in comedy as to be inclusive rather than mm-hmm. to shut anyone out or say, shut up or, you know, I don't, I don't do that. Um, and so yeah, bringing them into the experience felt right. And I think it paid dividends in terms of laughter. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it was also just wild. I'm like, my primary care physician is here. The chiropractor's here. I mean, it's like a street yeah. joke. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. of them walk into a bar, which they literally did for this yeah. recording. Yes. Well, and you very much wanted it to be healing for your wife, Karen. And I did. Um, how was it? What, how did that, did you have the desired impact? Did it have the desired impact? I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the thing about Karen is she's the best person on earth. In my opinion, I, I'm biased. I married mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's true. Like mm-hmm. she, she's somebody who's always like her parents, you know, trying to figure out how to help people. And, um, you know, she's, she's the best person. Mm -hmm. I really believe that Mm -hmm. and rabbi and wife, and I'm sure will be mother, you know, like, like it's just, she's, she's amazing. And so, um, I say that because even if it sucked, I think she would have been like, it was great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then it didn't. And she was like, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
brief. Yeah. What I've learned by talking to people both in my office and in these sorts of venues about grief, especially people who've lost children, mm. is only like no everyone's experience is completely different. And yeah. even though there's lots of information and resources out there, there's still no one that can tell you how to do it or what it's going to be like for you. And I'm totally. wondering what you can share with us about your experience with loss. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have experienced different kinds of losses. Um, and, and I, I mention three different losses and types of losses on the album. Our cat Mona died. My dad died at 73 and also our daughter Leo Pearl was stillborn. And I had stuff to say about each of those losses. And also as I was crafting the hour, what I wanted to achieve was to say something about grief generally, because the kind of grief that attends stillbirth, at least for me, was a confusing kind of grief because I never knew our daughter. Mm -hmm. So whereas when Mona died and when my dad died, I missed things about mm -hmm. them as living beings. And I had the experience in grief of looking backward with Leo. I didn't because I never knew her and she didn't live, but she did exist. And there definitely was grief. And there was that moment when time seemed to stop. And when the only thing that mattered was the fact that this person was no longer in the world that we know. And I think that that for me has been an element of grief, that time stopping moment. What I hope and look forward to incidentally is I'm like, cause I believe, well, it's not so much. I believe I, I just wonder. Mm -hmm. And I have a hypothesis that feelings of grief and joy are opposites of each other. And they have kind of an absolute value with respect to each other. And so if I'm capable of feeling grief at a level of negative X, mm -hmm. then that's a testament that I'm capable of feeling joy to a level of positive X. Mm. And so as low as I can feel is as high as I can feel. And I believe that um, to be true in terms of, you know, we're looking at heartbeat, an EKG kind of mirrors that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if it's true. And I hope it's true with respect to the joy of birth and is the joy that attends birth the positive X to the negative X of feeling the grief that attends stillbirth, certainly, and also other kinds of deaths. Uh, that wisdom, everyone. Did you all hear that? that okay, <laughs> that was that. That is really um, empowering, and oh. I think healing in and of itself, um, that the depths can equal the heights. And, I hope so. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you my experience of parenting. Please, um, is the same. And that's what that's what it made me think about is um, the the joy and the excitement and with all of the developmental milestones and just the experiences are beyond what I think one can imagine at times yeah. before having children, yeah. and equally the pain and the worry and the fear about the different 
real and imagined things that your kids mm -hmm. go through or might go through <laughs> can equal it. You know, so to, yeah. so to think about it as a continuum of if mm -hmm. one has the capacity to feel X on one end, you also have the capacity to feel it on the other, I think is yeah. really affirming. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, and, you know, I mean, to say anything else about grief, like, I think that one of the things that living through someone's stillbirth has taught me is the privilege of feeling the range of human experiences, emotions, including grief. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, it's a horrible thing, you know, to go through. And also, I guess it's my privilege to have gone through it because my stillborn daughter could never experience anything in life, including stillbirth. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a weird thing to acknowledge the privilege of pain. Yeah. And, and many say it's what we do with it and yeah. you clearly are doing something with it and you are speaking out and you are educating and you're talking about the things that many, many people experience in quiet, isolated corners mm -hmm. and trying to bring everyone together to acknowledge the hard stuff of life yeah. in a format that it can be addressed in a very real way, which is clearly your thing, and with humor, which is healing. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, trying to to do all that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. Okay. It's... Um, we have so much more to do, good do with our set today, but we have to start to wrap it up, unfortunately, sure. which means that yeah. we're moving to the parent footprint moment question, which yeah. you're so ready for. I just see it on your face. Okay, <laughs> here, we, here we go. Tell us about a time yeah. that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child. Mm -hmm. and or those you love. Yeah. So when I was four, I was in Miss Alice's ballet class, which I attended for one reason, which was that the studio where it met was on top of a haagen ice cream parlor. Perfect. And every day that I went to ballet, my mother allowed me to have ice cream after ballet. And I was like, I'm in for that. I did not realize, however that there was a recital that was part of the experience of being in Miss Alice's ballet class. And the recital, I was like, what do you expect me to do at this recital? It was not, first of all, in the same studio. It was like some other, you know, gym somewhere at a school, no ice cream in sight, <laughs> much to my dismay. But I was like, what do you want me to do on stage? Like wait for ice cream? Cause that's what I know how to do at ballet class. And that was why I was nervous at first, because I was mm -hmm. like, I don't know the moves. Mm -hmm. And my parents were in the audience. My grandparents were in the audience, like Holocaust survivor, you know, whatever. Yeah. And um, then when I learned what we were supposed to do, I became even more nervous. Okay. So what we were supposed to do, we were all dressed in like these togas that I think were like leftover fabric that somebody's mom got from Joanne's. 
and we look like rainbow cookies. We're all four years old. And all we had to do was hold the hand of the little girl to our right from the class and the little girl to our left from class and just walk around in one of two circles on the stage. And when I found out that, I was like, so nervous because I'm like, this show is going to suck. Okay. <laughs> My grandparents have survived wars. They've been through enough. We cannot subject them to this tragedy of a show. And rather than just do it and go in the circle, I stood in the middle of both circles and cried my eyes out. And I remember, I remember the feeling of like the bright lights, like in my mind, by the way, I was like on stage at Madison Square Garden. I'm sure it was like a literal gym at an elementary school, but regardless, they had stage lights. And I remember how they felt on my tears, Mm. which means that at some point I became aware enough that I was experiencing this moment and I wasn't exactly experiencing the moment. But I think in that moment, I cried harder because I'm like, at this point, I am the show, right? (laughs) I thought it sucked and I was right. But now I'm carrying this production, Mm. okay? And I got to cry harder. And I did. And, you know, when some people, like I've heard stand-up comedians in interviews say, oh, this was the moment that I started recognizing that I was a comedian, that I wanted to be a comedian. And often those stories are like, well, I got a lot of laughs and I was addicted to it or something like that. I don't mean to, you know, minimize or minimize or generalize, but um, some version of that. And for me, I think that this moment was the moment, not because I was getting laughs, because I definitely wasn't, but instead because what I wanted to do rather than cry was just talk to the audience and be like, excuse me, are you enjoying this? <laughs> because let me tell you, the ice cream is the best part of this class. It's the only thing that's worth anything. Let's mm-hmm. all go to Hagen. I know the way, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think it was just that desire to like break a fourth wall, say what's actually happening. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. They thought it was good. I don't think so. Right, okay. Right. And I think I was aware. I mean, I wasn't aware of myself as a parent because I wasn't a parent, but I think yeah. about that moment, not only because of its effect on me as a comedian and a performer, but also because I'm like, that was my instinct. What would I do yeah. if this was my kid? Yeah. I think I would be like, first of all, best part of the show. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, you were the only one anyone yeah. was watching. You stole it. Yeah. And super committed. Right? Yeah. right. I mean, so many good things to say. And by the way, I mean, my parents were great parents. They did not think of this as a, as a shining moment. Right. They, right. I even have them on tape later in my life where I bring it up again and they're like, well, that was bad. <laughs> and, and I think, I don't know exactly, but I think that maybe their parents were not thrilled with it and yeah. th- they were there. So then they're, yeah. you know, having that trickle on to me. I don't really know. I can ask my mother. I'm going to ask my mother. But, but anyway, you know, it was, it was a big moment yeah. of me realizing myself as a person. <laughs> that is a huge awareness to the point. So uh, to the point, not only were you had your, um, standards about performance and the experience that you wanted the audience to have, but the awareness and the feeling of the lights on your teeth, like, like you were, you are a hyper aware person 
I'm mm-hmm. sure. And For better um, or worse. Yeah, it comes in all. <laughs> it, it comes with all that. Um, yeah. Wow, that is a great story. And oh, um, thank you, Dr. Thank Dan. you for sharing that. Of course. Thank you thank for you, having me. Thank you, Liz, for sharing all of uh, your life with so us on stage. I, there was so many lines that I'm saving because everyone, you have to, you have to watch. And the one, the teaser that I'd like you guys all to go to. Liz is going to tell you her website. And yeah. the that eight minute um, ish piece from the Ashland Festival, um, oh, my wife and I watched that a um, few nights ago. Uh-huh. I just want you to know we were laughing out loud the entire the in, we were we were rewinding to hear parts again. Oh. So I just everyone as an introduction, if you just want to dip your toe, but Liz yeah. is going to tell you everywhere that you can find everything, yes. including a very particular experience. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to know that you and your wife enjoyed that set. Uh, I also enjoyed that set. Um, So the best way to find me is on my website, www.dearlizglazer.com, dear, D-E-A-R, Liz Glazer, L-I-Z-G-L-A-Z-E-R, dearlizglazer.com. And at Liz Glazer at all of the socials. I'm not on Twitter because my Twitter was hacked recently. Mm. Um, my friend was like, do you know that your Twitter is tweeting about cryptocurrency like once an hour? <laughs> yeah, that Which happens. anybody who right. knows me, I would only yeah. tweet about cryptocurrency max once a day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even know how to like use a Bitcoin or a dollar. But yeah. in any event. Um, so yeah, Liz Glazer, YouTube, Liz Glazer, you can find the Asheville set. Um, and then yeah, dearlizglazer.com and feel free to write me a note or whatever. Awesome. And um, just all best wishes to you and Karen for this new transition coming up soon. And I'm hoping we can do this again. Yes. Because you're going to have so much material about parenthood. So, oh my gosh, you're like, <laughs> you're, you're just going to have a long, long runway of yeah. stuff. So I hope we can do this again. I would love to. Absolutely. Thank you okay. so much, Dr. Dan, for having me on. Truly. Everyone, please share this with everyone that you know will benefit, which is pretty much everybody. Thank you for being part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.